Welcome to the Sober Community Channel, where our goal is to open minds and soften hearts concerning one of the greatest healthcare crises facing our country, which is addiction to drugs and alcohol. Hi, welcome back. I'm Rocky, and we're back with Bigger Than Me. I have our usual guests here today, Chris and Bree. How are you guys doing? Doing very well. Thank you. Doing great. So, back on the stigma campaign, right? So, we, we talked about the whole choice first disease concept, right? We talked about stigma and recovery itself. Mm-hmm. And today, let's focus on the workplace. From the perspective of people who are coming into recovery, who are new, and how it impacts them and what things we can do to work kind of productively around the stigma that we have to deal with while we also as a community try to address that as a larger whole. Um, Let's talk about employers, right? Because somebody who's new coming into recovery is probably not going to find the career that they're going to spend the rest of their life in. That's correct. Yeah, there's that that line in the book that talks about we have a new employer, capital E. We're talking about our real job is to get and stay sober, to do the steps, to get the sponsor, to do all that stuff. However, it's better to work the steps when you're indoors, have food, mm-hmm. and are not homeless. So, like, so what do you call it? A mick job? Call it a mick job. A mick job. Mick job. Something entry level, whatever it is that I can pay the bills, get a tattoo, right? Get a couple packs of call cigarettes. White sneaker sobriety. Yeah, it's <laughs> a whole different conversation. That's a yeah. whole show, right? But th- yeah. enough to stay indoors and get my basic needs met. That's what we're looking to have to happen. So, from an employer standpoint, let, let me actually go back to one of the blogs that we posted or will be posted, that this whole thing, it says that there are two sides of this equation, employer and employee. Social reintegration is a team sport. Everybody has their part. There are many things that employers can do to help addicts and alcoholics in recovery to re-enter the workforce. The main one is to believe in second chances and hire. Stigma closes many doors. Understanding, education, and compassion can reopen them. Why would an employer do this? Simple. Those in recovery have more to prove than the average person. Often those stricken with the disease of addiction are highly talented, fiercely loyal, and high performers, assuming they are on the upswing. So, you're an employer, Chris. I am. And you employ people in recovery. I do. You happen to be one yourself. I am. You want to talk a little bit about what you find when you're actually hiring addicts and alcoholics? I will, yeah. So, within that blog... We talk about some of those attributes, and we talk about highly talented, fiercely loyal, high-performing. Um, and what we what we do at Gatehouse is what we find is what we're trying to do is we're trying to integrate our clients into this community, whatever community that may be, whether it be local or back home once you complete our program. A lot of a lot of the clients that come to our program end up residing in the local area because they built a fellowship they they built a community around them so what we want eventually if it's the path that they choose we want to hire them who knows better uh, than an alumni client so when i got my first job in recovery it was an entry-level position paraprofessional i walked in and i was in the i was in the waiting room of of the facility and the CEO came walking out, looked at me and said, Chris, I'm not taking you back to the facility. I've already given you numerous chances. And I looked at him and I said, I have a year sober. I, I'm here to interview. And he looked at me and I didn't have to go through any type of interview process. Uh, he says, you have the job. 
He says, you have the job. And I looked at him. I was like, oh, this is great. You know, when do I start? And he said, come tomorrow. I went through all the trainings. And then I spoke to the, uh, the executive director at the time. And he's like, who knows this program better than you? You are an alumni. You can hide better. You can lie better. You can manipulate better. So you are the perfect person for this job. Uh, he knew how loyal I was and how driven I was because of the way I used. We are, and I say we, are some of the smartest people out there. We just need to use our knowledge and our skills that we put towards towards using into into the workforce. So when I'm looking for somebody outside of their interview skills, their education, what they want to do, some of their strengths, some of their weaknesses, I want to look at what they've overcome in their life. We have been through some of the darkest places and we've we've risen from it. So some of the things that I, I definitely look for is is the experience, especially when treating alcoholics and addicts uh, that suffer from from misuse we uh we want to know that they're able to properly treat these clients because they're all involved they're all involved so that's some of the stuff that i look at and i know i have a lot of experience with it and uh we would much rather not that we don't hire those that are not in recovery but we need them to have an understanding of what we're dealing with so that's uh that's a little bit of, of mine. I know we'll get further into it down the line. Yeah, that also comes back to, from a psychological standpoint, there's that, obviously, Carl Jung being really well-known and really famous, and he talks about these archetypes, these, these primal characters that live within all of us, and one of them being the wounded healer, which is the person who, because of the wounds that he's transcended, understands and hears better the cries of other people who are suffering. Do you find that to be a factor? Obviously, I mean, you're talking about a lot of that, that these are people who see and understand the problem from inside the barrel. They, they've been there, they've done that, they've gotten out. That gives them kind of an advantage in certain aspects, doesn't it? I, I believe it, it does. Now, if you look at the into any job that you have, eventually you need to have... If it's sales product knowledge, you need to understand the industry that you're in and the product that you're selling. In our industry, yes, I, I believe that you need to either have an education or you need to have the real life experience that they uh, that they talk about and that, that Carl Jung talks about. Yeah. So they, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you pointed out taking the advantages of active addiction and bringing them into the workplace once we transform those things. Like, it's, it's very interesting that the, the cunningness of an addict, right? Some of us have had incomes of multiple hundred dollars a day with no job. Like, yeah. wake up every day and be like, I need to make two or three hundred dollars today. I guess there's, and we say there's not a difference between alcoholics and addicts. Like, primarily, they're both cats. There may be a tabby, and this one may be a calico, or whatever the case may be. But, I mean, a lot of addicts don't, it's not really sufficient to stand on a 95 sign. We know with a sign, like, while well, I need a hit, you're not going to get enough money, right? So, but either which way, we learn to hustle. And so we can take those things and transform them. It seems like those are the kind of people. I mean, anybody can get $200 a day waking up sick. Yeah. You know, and there's the addicts that go to work and they actually have jobs in active addiction. They sleep for 15 minutes. They show up a little scruffy or what the case may be, but they outperform other people who mm -hmm. had a morning jog and Wheaties and they, and then they go right back into their whole thing. So how amazing could they be if they transform those skill sets? And it's our job, and it's our job at Gatehouse Treatment to to really show them that way. So our case management department is really set up to have those clients achieve that, achieve that, and and it, it really starts with what do you want, who are you, what are your skills, what are some of your talents, 
where have you worked in the past? What industries have you worked in? Uh, to what capacity have you worked? And then also it falls into, okay, let's start getting your resume ready and let's work with you on your resume and spend some time. Once we have your resume in place, then we do start doing some mock interviews. And, and when I say mock interviews, it's not just, oh, you get in front of me and you, you know, we have a, a pretend interview. I want you to interview with the CEO of the company. I want you to sit with Ed McDonough. I want you to sit with Patrick Kilkenny. I want to sit with Nathan Irvine. And I want them to ask you questions as we would for a, a C-suite employee. You have to be set up for everything. And when you go to an interview, how do you dress? A lot of, a lot of guys or a lot of individuals in recovery, they were never taught these skills. They don't know how to look somebody in the eye when they're interviewing. We used to look it into the sky or looking into the ground, especially a lot of us in front of the judge. That's what we did. We looked at this. We couldn't make eye contact. We we're always high. So teaching those skills, asking questions that, um, that employers normally ask, ask you during the interview, shaking a hand. A lot of people don't know how to shake, a, shake someone's hand, have a firm handshake how to sit in an interview. A lot of people slouch, they cross their legs. You want to sit straight. You don't want to cross your legs. You want to, you want to be engaged. So if you're an employer and you interview frequently, you're going to know these things and you're going to read that person. So it's our job at Gatehouse to, to, to show them the way, to show them how to do this. Right. We're talking about social reintegration. So are you familiar with Rat Park? Lots of people have different takes on it. Maybe? I don't know. It's a social experiment they did. I, we've all heard of the rats that they do the drug experiments on. Mm-hmm. And they take the one rat and they give him a little thing where he pushes it and he gets some cocaine. And eventually he just chooses not to push the button for food. He gets the alternative of food or cocaine and then he just cocaine. pushes the cocaine until he has a heart attack. right? And if they put like pot in it, I guess he just hits the pot and then goes back to the food pellets. I'm not really so sure. And then they, they give a rat meth and he just cleans the cage. Stuff like that. <laughs> right. Rat park's different. They actually took rats and they gave them uh, a, like an actual park where they could play and do all these things and the option to have like a dose of some kind of mind-altering substance. The rats who were put in the generic maze always went back to the substance, but the rats who were put in a place where there was all kinds of stuff to play with literally chose not to do the drugs. So one of the things that the person who, it's a TED talk he talks about, but he says the opposite of addiction, and I don't know if this is controversial or not, is not, it's not this whole, it's connection, right? And so when somebody's connected to their community, we see things that are happening in, in like in Portugal, where they've reduced so much by taking away stigma. And they've actually, when people come into drug addiction and they actually come into this system, they start to get them jobs. It's one of the avenues that they take. They start to put them as members of the communities to give them a larger sense of purpose, right? So what we're talking about are all different little aspects of social reintegration, giving a person a purpose larger than themselves. A lot of us in recovery find it through service and sponsorship and things like that. But that only takes you so far. It'll keep you clean and sober, Right, but beyond that, I mean, you can only do so many meetings a day and so many sit-downs with a big book or, or whatever other text you're using before you also want to have an outside affairs to actually practice the principles in, uh-huh. right? So so let's do, I mean, because we also put out some pro tips on work. It's one of the blogs that we'll post or maybe connect to this if it, when it comes out, but you just talked about a lot of the things that were already in that. So, so when I'm new and I'm in recovery and I haven't really been trained on those skills, it's interesting because... I mean, back in the 30s, most of the alcoholics and people who were coming to recovery were already solid. They were already in a second phase of life. They were already professionals, mm-hmm. all this stuff. Now we have this generation raised 
but kind of raise themselves. I mean, we saw this pandemic crack epidemic in the 80s, and all of a sudden parents were just missing, and kids are raising themselves. They're raised by television, by their local neighborhood. On the other side of the spectrum with the grandiose entitlement, where it's they just were never taught those skills, or they had everything handed to them. So yeah, right. similar. It's, it's funny. There's a theory out there that talks about three boxes There's a, of, of life from a general standpoint and a spiritual standpoint. The first box is we get a life of order, and then comes disorder. For some of us, it's we're 35 years old. We're married. We wake up. We, we really married the stereotype our parents expected us to. We took the career our parents expected us to, and we get a life that's not ours, and we go through midlife crisis, and we mm-hmm. get a Corvette and an 18-year-old girlfriend, and then whatever. So that would be the box of... of disorder and then later we come to the more mature stage of life which is another box of order so it's boxes of of order then disorder and then order again but many of addicts really are born into a box of disorder so these are and you talked about the, the i'm not sure the term you use but these are kids who literally are coming to learn not just how to not use drugs and alcohol but literally for the first time in their life being trained life skills that they missed and it's not about blaming or where the responsibility lies but they just missed them they didn't know things like Stare somebody in the eyes and, and how to actually make the webs of a hand touch when you shake. And it's amazing. It's pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting, right? So, so let's go into some of these pro tips that we talked about when you're looking for work, right? We have this. We put out a blog, but let's let's go over some of the points because they're useful for anybody. I, I almost feel, and I remember when I when I had that halfway house years ago, I used to challenge people. Yeah. I will show you how to get a job in three days. If you follow this system, three days you'll have a job. I don't care who you are, but do exactly these things. I, I never saw that challenge lost. I've some people get. I worked, worked with some of them, and and most of them, most of them that followed that, they had success. We had over seventy percent of over fifty to, to seventy addicts employed at all what times. What a concept, right? And then uh, other ones who were not had just come in like a week or two, and we were like. Back off on the job for now. Your job is to get sober, get a sponsor, get into steps. And then right following after that, let's be able to get you to pay some rent. That's a big part. Yeah. So so let's go over some. What are, the, what, are these, what are these simple, simple little things that a person can do? I mean, everybody, oftentimes some of us, especially if we come in with a little bit of skill set, maybe a resume put together, we oftentimes go to monster.com and throw that stuff out. And then we think we're job hunting. If we switch the topic just to job hunting for a second or the recovery, and we, because I put out on Monster.com or all these things, or I looked on uh, a couple of things and shot out stuff through the internet, like I'm interviewing. Is that accurate? No. Where's the follow up? Yeah. Where's the calls? Right. Where's the initiative? And you just I can press a button on Monster or Indeed or any of those platforms that says just launch my launch my resume everywhere, and and yeah, I can I can pick and filter where I want to send my resume to, but I'm not really involved with that and they don't follow up for me if they don't see your face you're literally just a piece of paper and if you're not the highest qualified piece of paper you don't even get looked at correct right and then i mean generally recovery resume looks like a bunch of mick jobs you know when i look at a resume if i'm an employer and spread out over the course of their six month intervals where you just disappeared off the face of the earth nobody's ever looking at that resume i look at where you worked i looked at the people that you worked for i look at gaps there's a whole bunch of factors. There's a way to get around that, which is like you're talking about the face-to-face. Correct. Right? So so let's talk about before we even walk through the door because face-to-face is the, one of the things that was pointed out is the decision-maker is key. Uh-huh. I need to look in the eyes of the decision-maker and then give the right impression. So that includes things like what you talked about. How do I dress? Like what's a normal – and it's not – you don't have to wear – $100 suit or $500 suit or anything like that, but something simple as khakis that you get from Walmart, some shoes. If you don't have those and you live in a halfway house, you can borrow them from somebody who does have them, right? And, and then just looking for like a, a button-down shirt. That's enough, right? 
correct it is okay yeah. Look, tuck in your shirt have a belt on have some 20 dollars pay less shoes yes it ne is neatly pressed right so yes. if you don't have that everybody has something that's around you in the community you can definitely borrow that from somebody yeah. right salvation army or other options that are very very cheap yeah so looking the part right and then when actually find a decision maker you know i taught people always to walk into the business see if they're hiring <clears throat> there is a, a simple format of literally like door knocking for jobs if you don't have a job your job is to get a job. That's a 40-hour a week commitment. It takes 40 hours a week looking for a job to land a 40-hour a week job. So what are they, what, what, what's the, the equation? I, I think it's if you work five days a week, eight hours a day, and you put in eight resumes a day for a 40-hour a week, you will find a full-time job or something along those lines? Yeah, literally just actively looking in the ways that we're going to suggest the whole 40 hours. So, I mean, it may come down to eight resumes a day. It may be three or four, but here's the thing that gets missed, right? I could go to a shopping plaza. Here I know I can get a job anywhere in the country at any given time on entry level just to get my life rolling again if I needed to. I go into the shopping plaza. I walk around. I look for any of the help wanted ads. The other things I could do right off the bat to find decision makers, I can look at uh, – I could look at the boards in, in clubhouses. There's usually jobs there. I could look online at some of those things that are local papers or Craigslist or anything like that and then go find out what jobs are available. One of the most powerful tools that I think a lot of people do use is just networking. Like if you live in a halfway house that's got 30 or 40 people or even 10 or 15, half of them are probably already employed. We already know those employers are recovery friendly most likely. I can't tell you how many guys uh, in our Nashua facility do landscaping they do landscaping they do paving they work at restaurants and you build relationships with these people they learn to trust you and then they're willing to recommend you um, now that could go <laughs> that's a hit or miss situation that could go south uh, but a lot of the times if you're friendly with somebody and they know that you have good work ethic and you're going to show up and you're responsible then they have no problem referring you to their their employer and this is my friend this is what's going on with him and networking Let's let's take a detour right now and talk about South for a minute. And South being, okay, I live in a halfway house, and then half of them work in a, I call it a cashway house, mm -hmm. which is a telemarketing firm where we are doing, I won't get into certain industries, they're all out there, mm -hmm. right? But, I mean, the bottom line is if people are nodding off at their desks, if you're working off of lead lists that are on paper without computers and cell phones, you know, say hello to the FBI at some point in your future. Yes. Right? So those are just, those are certain jobs that just don't work. If you, if you don't practice, practice some kind of ethics, it's probably going to bite you. Yeah. Right later down the road. So let's just eliminate those. That's not even a part of this conversation, right? However, there are other jobs which look like traditionally sound jobs but are not good for early recovery. One of the ones that I, I very rarely would endorse for a person, there's only unique situations, is second shift jobs or third shift jobs when you're brand new in recovery. Well, you just mentioned what, what's, what's stated on the blog that, that was that was wrote. So it pitfalls into early recovery. Right. And the jobs to really stay away from, you just mentioned the first one, unhealthy environments. Right. Um, if the feds are going to come kick in the door and take all of the equipment, if it's a second shift, if it's commission-based, if, if you have to put on some type of face to sell a product that you don't believe in, those are the ones that we stay away right. from. A lot of those are all commission-based jobs. People who are looking to fix the outside rather than the inside just make money through calls. I'm not knocking all call centers. I worked at a call center for a year and a half. Of course. I, I, did, I did as well. It's a very, very reputable company with an internet service product you know it was a commission job but i was familiar with those kind of pay formats so I, I did very well that's not the same as walking in and some every week somebody is knocking on the door saying i need a cash advance because i got kicked out of my halfway house totally different that's why i call those cashway houses it's eight hours a day of a halfway house environment with just phones and sales mm -hmm. right so so taking those off second shift jobs 
one of the reasons why I feel like they just take a person out in early recovery is because most of recovery and fellowshipping and step working and all the people who are trying to like change their lives, they're doing that stuff after five o'clock yeah. from like five to 10 PM. And I, I did this in, in early recovery in my first tour, actually not too early. I had a year or two, like about two years sober. And I remember getting a job as a tech in one of the treatment centers locally and thinking out, this will be great. Now I'm an undisciplined person by nature. Right, so I was like, if I go to work at two, I can get up, I can hit a morning meeting, I can hit the gym, I can do all these cool things. And what really happened was I got up at noon, mm-hmm. I had two hours to get to work, I ate some food, I went to work, I got off at eleven or whatever it was. Everybody else was sleeping, right? And I had I had nothing, I had nowhere to go. I like I lived in like a vampire land, and now third shift, whole different ballgame. Third shift is a vampire shift that literally goes against the biology of a human it being. Does. It just kind of takes you out of the game. So. You know, pitfalls are second shift, third shift jobs, any kind of, you know, unethical environment. If it looks unethical, it probably is. And even if it's not, are there some people doing this particular industry in a good way? Sure, possibly. If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and has webbed feet like a duck. It's probably not a unicorn. It's not. It's a duck. <laughs> right. It's a duck, right? So so that being said, right? So those are ones. What are some other pitfalls? Some of the pitfalls I, I can tell you is, as you mentioned, the shift, the commission jobs, uh, the easy money, the unhealthy environment. Um, Can I say on commission jobs? It's kind of a toss-up. Some people are really good at commission sales, and if it's a reputable company, but they're a rare breed, you know if you're one of those. But we, we're trying to change our perspective and outlook, and we're also trying to change our behaviors. A lot of us came in here selling drugs and right. selling things, and we're really good at selling things. Based in, Normally, we didn't get a salary for selling our mother's jewelry. We got commission. Yeah, off drug of what deals we got. Is a commission only job. So Good we want we job. want to change the way that we we think and we value our paycheck. Right. Um, so I, I really strongly suggest staying away from commission. I look at getting a getting a, a minimum wage job. It's humbling. You work. It's it's your it's a valued paycheck. How many people listening right now? Like. Throwing up and exactly, and, and, and that's why I really wanted to, I really wanted to discuss it because a lot of the times our admission guys are talking and, and they're like, "I need to get back to work. I need to get back to this. I need to do that. I have all of this stuff." Well, you're gonna lose it anyways if you don't continue doing what you have to do. You're gonna lose that job. I literally have a kid who I was sponsoring very recently, who the whole breaking thing, whatever, but I watched him make $20,000, $15,000, $30,000 several months in a row through all ill-gotten gains, all stuff he learned in these little call center stuff. He does it privately. And I watched him buy three cars, lose three cars. He's literally been like tweaking down the streets so bad of shape that the paramedics are called and like don't even know what to do with him. He didn't even break a law. He like goes into a store to charge his phone and he gets the cops called on him because he looks so bad. There's no consequences. And and his constant thing is, I just need to get these outside things right. Of so, course. I, mean, I, taught, I told him, take a humble job. Take a humble job. He did it for a while and then he then he kind of had that fear come up of the insecurity. He went right back to that old way and it brought him right back. Well, you take an entry level position. You show your worth. You show that you can, you can be on time. The accountability, you're there. You're not calling out within the first 90 days, which is things that we'll get into. And if you're, and I just want to add, if you're entrepreneurially minded, right, or spirited, you, you're just biding your time. You're building your foundation. It's you're, temporary. You're, that's gonna, stuff going to happen anyway. You're going to get out there. You're going to make your business plans and business, so all that stuff. But earn first the lifestyle that supports having an entrepreneurial life. 
with nobody, I'm not a fan of the idea that, that humility and poverty are synonyms. There are many people that do very well in life financially, but they have a spiritual foundation that allows them to, to deal with that properly. So that's earning that would be some kind of a humble Correct. job. The other, the other one pitfall that we don't really have to get into, but I, I would like the listeners to know this, is, is the kitchen, the back of the house. It can be a very dangerous place to work. I saw the movie Waiters. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a whole different conversation, <laughs> um, and I'm not judging all cooks because I know very highly educated professional sous chefs and, and line cooks. But a lot of a lot of the times you will see a lot of drugs and alcohol in the back of the house, and you see it in the restaurant industry in general. But I, I went to college and my undergrad was a, was hospitality management, and that was one of the things that they taught us: make sure that you really know the restaurant or service industry that you're going into. Right. Uh, because yeah, it's going to be common. It's going to be common. Extremely so, common. So that, let's jump back to going north, so to speak, right? The basics here. So these are the basics. And we have a – all this is laid out. So if you find value in this, you, you know, maybe we'll attach the blog to it or it will be released. But here's some pro tips. I, I can guarantee you'll get a job. Let's just go with the simple ones that we all know first. Those are like the basic tips and then some pro tips. Dress. We talked about that. Speech. I wrote, don't use slang, enough said. Enough said. Not mean? I don't do it. I feel you. Yeah, don't do it, right? <laughs> have a resume, right? Try to explain the gaps that you might have in your resume face to face to the decision maker if you have those, right? Now, jumping on to pro tips, these are the simple things you already talked about, right? I have this acronym C smile, eye contact, and enthusiasm, right? If two applicants are, are in the same position on paper, chances are the employer is going to hire the one they like better as a person. Right? Nobody wants them to bring them down or negative rate at that. So smile, eye contact, enthusiasm, all of those first impression things that you only get one shot at, so to speak. Right? And then um, here's a literal script that if you get, well, let me just get, before you get to decision maker, oftentimes people get this block that, well, the person wasn't there. Don't take no for an answer. Absolutely. So if I'm take seven no's to get a yes. Right. If, I, if I'm walking into a business, I, I want to ask these questions. And I think this is where a lot of people miss. This is where I know anybody can get a job. I've seen it time and time again. You fill out the application. You hand it in. You say, who is making the decisions? Right. And then they'll say, whatever. It's Bob, the manager. Is Bob here? No, he's not. Next question. People would walk out the door. Next question is, when is Bob in? And then even if they say, well, he doesn't see people directly, that's fine. Just Kind of put that to the side. Just ask when they're there. And then come back and return when they're there. And here's literally what I've taught people to say again and again. And it seems to always do very, very well for them when you put it in front of multiple decision makers. Which is, hi, I, I know you when you meet. Hi, Bob. My name is Rocky. You do that whole whatever it is. Handshake, eye contact, enthusiasm. I'm, I just I know you don't make hiring decisions. Just play the low key. right? But I just wanted you to put a face to the application. I've already put an application in. I just wanted you to know that I'm hardworking. I'll start from the beginning. I have a great attitude. I'm a team player. And I'm just looking for a shot to get in the door. So, And thank them for their time. And patiently kind of just walk away. If you do that over and over with decision makers, I just don't see how you can't land a job. Because you stand out from the people who are just they're looking at papers over and over. Bob, Michael, Ricky, John, Kelly, whoever it is. And I'm like, oh, that's the guy that came in, shook my hand, was nice to me. You know, you're just going to be right on the top of that pile every single time. Does that sound accurate? It's very mm-hmm. accurate. What else do you guys have to add to that? I know that when I get the follow-up call, because time is a very valuable asset. Right? A lot of us uh, don't have time, and it's 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 an asset that we, that we really need. So when somebody 
if somebody makes it easier for me to hire them, that's what I want. I don't want to go around and around and around. Make it as easy as possible for this person. Send them all of the documents, everything that they need, your resume, have it all there for a binder. And there's more that we can get into on our next segment. But I, I do want to say if you have everything during your interview, if you do, if you're able to earn that interview, make sure you have everything. Right. Come make prepared. sure just come prepared. Uh, make sure that you're, like you said, make sure that you're dressed. Make sure that you're ready to, ready to talk, ready to make eye contact. I can't, I can't say this enough. When when we speak to somebody, if somebody is saying um and ah uh, and uh and not answering the questions clearly, then we know that they're not confident. Right. So I do want to make sure that you guys are aware of of that. But the ums and the ahs, it's incompetent. It's just a lack of preparation. You can actually pre-interview yourself in the mirror. Go over that whole thing. We put that script in that blog. Like literally say these things. You can practice that. You can make your own version of it. But the idea there is that I, I'm, I'm seeing the person. I'm letting them know what I bring to the table. And then I'm exiting politely. Yeah. Right? And then the, I think the last thing I'll wrap up on, unless you guys have stuff to add, is that, that whole rinse, lather, repeat. Just like when you wash your hair. That's what it says in the bottle. Same deal. Like I literally do not have a job until my first day of work. Of course. So many of us go out and we interview and we're like, well, I did uh, you know, five interviews this week. Great. Do you have a job? Right? 40 hours into looking for a job over and over again. And even when I have people considering me, it still doesn't mean I'm employed. Like the day that I show up at my first job should be the day after I just look for my last job. What about the guy that we can, we can kind of end with this because it's a great story. I'm not sure if you remember this, but it's something that you've always said that stuck with me. Among the hundred other things that you've always said. that decision we have goal and we have ambitions so you have the two guys that are sitting there playing xbox it's about 11 o'clock in the afternoon they have nothing to do this guy says i want the job this guy says i want the same job he's sitting there playing xbox eating twinkies but he makes a decision to move forward and put action behind his decision action behind his decision to get that job goes out there puts the resume in gets through gets through the gatekeeper, gets to the decision maker, puts on a great presentation, he gets the job, and the guy sitting back eating the Twinkie playing Xbox is like, I told you I wanted that job. Well, you didn't make the, the you didn't right. the action behind your decision to get that job. Right, the universe I respects did. action. I mean, here's the thing, like we can talk about the spiritual element of getting a job. Like I'm praying for a job. God's response is go on an interview. Right. Resolutions? The, the footwork, right? There's a lot of footwork to actually go out there and be done. Exactly. So, I mean, we pray for the outcome to be, you know, us to have acceptance of the outcome, but we do the footwork, you know, and, and God does his part. I've never seen anybody who's really, truly in their heart trying to change their life, use these kind of approaches, go out there and not be able to provide for themselves. I mean, most of us, if you're listening to this, you're alive. You've literally been fed and held and closed or we've put ourselves through some stuff. But when you're moving in the direction towards the power of bearing yourself, it seems to move quickly towards you. Yeah, and I look forward to discussing this further. Me too. Because I, I, I think it's a big I think it's a big issue that, that uh those in early recovery are facing. Yeah. And it's a big hurdle that they need to that they need to overcome. Our thing is just to continue to put out platforms where we can give them information they might not have gotten yet and uh, and help them move forward in their journey with as much ease as possible. Yeah. Well thank you for having me. I look forward to uh, discussing this further. My pleasure and thank you again. Thanks again, Bree. Mm -hmm. And we will talk to you next week.